You know, it's more than the great resignation. It's more than the great reset. It's more than quiet quitting. This is all about reimagining. It's an opportunity to create something better. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Bob Johansson. Bob is Distinguished Fellow and former CEO at the Institute for the Future. He has worked as a professional futurist for nearly 50 years, including in the 1970s, exploring the implications of ARPANET, which evolved to become what we now call the Internet. He is a frequent keynote speaker and the author or co-author of 12 books, including his latest title, Office Shock, Creating Better Futures for Working and Living, just out now. In this episode, Bob shares insights on the Officeverse, Augmented Intelligence, Thinking Future Back, and People as Filters. Keep listening to learn from Bob's great insights. Bob, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Great to be here. So you have a book just out, Office Shock, which looks at how offices are changing and what they will become. Uh, so perhaps you can just give us the, the thesis in a, in a minute. We can dig into the how they can uh, help us to thrive on overload. Sure. So office shock is abrupt, unsettling change in how, when, where, and even why, even why we work. So office shock has been invoked, has been uh, scattering us um, as a result of COVID. But it's much deeper than that, and it's much more than just when did we go back to the office. We think this is a historic opportunity to rethink just how work happens and how work is integrated with our our private lives. So the one of the ways in which offices are shifting as it's shifting to what you describe in the book is the office verse, <laughs> yeah, which is uh, beyond any particular place. I understand. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, the term metaverse has become quite a pop uh, culture term. And, you know, those of us in Silicon Valley realize that one big corporation has tried to own the term metaverse. So we've decided to coin our own word, the office verse. And it's actually a sequence. We think of the office as the place, uh, the buildings, officing as the process, the verb, and office verse as the way it all fits together, the kind of anytime, any place mix of how we work and 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 indeed how we thrive. You know, I love the title of your book in terms of thriving and overload. Uh, the notion of the office verse is really an an attempt to create, and it's a, it's not just an attempt; it's now a requirement to create ways of working anytime, any place 
And our hope, you know, we're futurists. Our hope is to create a work environment that's better than we've ever seen. So I always think that an organization is a set of individuals brought together. And uh, as you pointed out in the book as well, with a common purpose and, and, and working to be able to achieve that. So the I suppose perhaps that's the context. An office, the office verse, is the space for an organization with aligned purpose and you know to be able to create something so is that the is that the case that the office versus where an organization resides that's right yeah and and, and it, it's interesting way to phrase it where an organization resides it's where individuals reside as well and it's where we work and and live uh, and the opportunity that's presented now is a historic opportunity to rethink all the basics, uh, where, you know, going into COVID, um, for the past 50 years, there have been efforts at remote work and, you know, terms like telecommuting and telework and all these different options. And then, of course, the internet made connection possible. And the technologies, including the one we're using right now, they didn't just happen with COVID. Uh, they were developed over a 50-year period uh, and it took roughly 50 years to be an overnight success. And the overnight success was forced, forced by COVID. Uh, you know, we were scattered from offices. It wasn't an option. It was forced. And luckily, the technology was good enough to function in a way that was surprisingly productive. So even though there was very little preparation for this, um, it was pretty productive for most organizations. And it was actually very productive for some individuals. It was also very unfair, you know, for some individuals that didn't have a good place to work at home or had little kids around or elders they were caring for. It wasn't a good thing. But for many people, it was a good thing. And now we're faced up, you know, it's more than the great resignation. It's more than the great reset. It's more than quiet quitting. This is all about reimagining. Uh, and it's it's an opportunity to create something better, uh, to be better than we were before. So there are some work environments that you do require to be physically there. I suppose the you know, classic assembly line uh, for the Ford used to run, or there are some people that do need to be on site for a sure. nuclear power plant. But um, most people are deal with information. And... This can happen physically where you're next to each other and you're bouncing ideas around and there's, you may be assisted with the, the, the trust or the other things which give you that yeah. the ability to throw around ideas better, but a lot of that information can also be done virtually. Yeah. So in that context of physical versus remote and this idea of information being the you know the element which we are using to be able to create value. What what are the differences, or what where might we prefer a physical or remote location in that collaborative information you know, value creation? Great question. Um, so to begin with, uh, you're exactly right that there's some things that just have to happen in person. Um, when when I'm talking to the CEO of Borg Weiner, who's one of our clients, the world's leading supplier of auto parts, uh, 160 factories around the world, we refer to that as the factory verse, the factory verse, because the center of the world for Borg Warner is not the office. The center of the world is the factory. 
Um, we also work for Walmart, the world's largest retailer. Uh, when I talk to their CEO, um, I refer to this as the retail verse because the center of the world for them is the store. And the next most important is the distribution center. So we think of that as the retail verse. Now to come back to offices and the office verse, um, what we know from research is that in-person meetings could be at offices or other places. In-person meetings are best for orientation, trust building, renewal, early stage creativity, and culture building, particularly for young people. I mean, when, when you're young, you really need to travel. <laughs> you need to visit places. You need to be there in person. Uh, Cross-generational mentor mentoring is very powerful. So in-person is really important. Um, so that's why we should have offices. But we don't need them all the time, and we don't need them nine to five, and we don't need them for many other things. And, you know, one of the big questions, you know, when I uh, am introducing the Office Shock book to CEOs, I just talked to one last week, and, and I said, you know, what I just said to you about the the importance of of in-person meetings for orientation, trust building, renewal, and early stage creativity, he looked around and he said, our office isn't that good for any of those. <laughs> so so if you're gonna if that's the reality, you gotta rethink your offices. So my co-author on this book is Joseph Press, who's a PhD in architecture from MIT. He was a workplace architect early in his career and became a digital transformation expert later in his career. Architecture is so important, and office shock is a shock for commercial real estate. It's a shock that says, we've got to rethink the offices we do have, and almost certainly, if you think future back, which is what we're doing, almost certainly, we're going to have fewer traditional offices. And good riddance, they were, they were not that good to begin with. So almost certainly we're going to have fewer. And the, and the offices we do have are going to be different. They're going to be designed to facilitate early stage creativity, orientation, trust building, and the like. The negative scenario is that CEOs pull people back into the office and they go into their offices, close the door, and have Zoom meetings. You know, that's, that's the worst scenario. <laughs> so there are, of course, you know, many substantial organizations that are completely virtual or are virtual you know, remote first uh -huh. or whatever terminology they use, in which case the, you know, they're hopefully they're enabling good places to work wherever they are, be they at home or, uh -huh. you know, uh, co-working spaces, what, what it may be. So, but this becomes then a purely information-based organization. You're dealing with uh, technologies to collaborate on documents, to uh, throw out ideas, to be able to create outputs that you know value-generating software or <laughs> other things. So, what what are the 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 factors that drive product? You know, what I describe as information productivity. The information being more productive in this completely virtual context. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm not I'm not sure how it's going to match out in terms of completely virtual. I think most environments are going to be mixed. Uh they'll be and we've got a map in the book about this territory from the office building uh to the factory to the retail store to home office to distributed and it really is a question of which medium is good for what. 
And leaders and organizations and individuals are going to have to be really graceful in all the different media options. And as they're trying to figure out how to thrive in this information-rich environment, they're going to have to be able to choose, you know, when do we meet in person? And it isn't always going to be at the office. We There's this very uh, traditional company we studied in the Midwest, which has pretty much gone all virtual, uh, but three times a year they bring people into the home center. They call it the homecoming, <laughs> the homecoming. And, and they don't always even meet in offices. Sometimes they meet in resorts or hotels or uh, whatever to try to encourage the orientation and the trust building and the renewal. So the real challenge is what's the mix? What's the right mix? And that mix can help people thrive in an information-rich environment, can help them be more productive in an information-rich environment, can also help them avoid being overloaded in an information-rich environment. So particularly, that's 37 signals? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't actually thinking of them. This was another company that I can't name at this point, but it's it's um, a large, a large, very conservative company that would surprise you. <laughs> okay, interesting. The So, yes, and so then the times when you come together are those of trust-making, of, you know, building the collaboration, yeah. being able to do the things you can't do virtually. Yeah. But a lot of the work does happen virtually, and that is when these information-based flows. Uh-huh. And so how is it that we can maximize the productivity of organizations beyond the aspects of bringing together the culture? You right. know, are there design factors for organizations or the way in which they are configured, which uh, will drive the ways they can create value. Yes. Yes, definitely. And we're just learning those ways. Um, and I think it's going to be a mix of in-person and virtual. Um, you you see, you know, I, I, I'm a public speaker and I used to be on the road all the time uh, pre-COVID. Now I'm still a public speaker. I still write books, but I'm inviting people into my study. You know, so the metaphor here is I, I want to be better than if I was on stage. Uh, so I'm inviting people into my study in a way that I couldn't if I was on stage. I've got VR headsets up there if they want to shift into VR. Um, I've got a story around everything in my study, and I've got a local videographer I work with to produce videos for pre-watch and for post-watch, so I can be interactive in ways I couldn't be if I was on stage. And everybody has to figure out for themselves how to best do that, how to uh, do what their intent is. You know, we talk in the book a lot about purpose, and you do in your book too. What we say is, um, while the question that many people are asking today is, when do we go back to the office? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a legitimate question. But for us, it's number six in a list of seven questions. And the first question is, why do you want an office at all? You know, what's the purpose of the office? And as I said earlier, there are, there are good reasons to meet in person, but that should be a question asked, not an assumption made. And that's what I'm talking about. You have to begin with the purpose. And then in the book, Office Shock, we've got seven spectrums of choice, which we present in order. So the first question is, why do you want an office at all? The second is, what are the outcomes you're seeking? The third is, the most important outcome over the next decade is climate. 
if we don't deal with the climate issue, we're, we're out of the game in some serious ways. So we focus on climate and the third spectrum. Then we ask the question of belonging. As you were asking, Ross, what are the ways you build a corporate culture? How do you create a sense of belonging? And you know, traditional offices weren't that good at that. They, they were, um, if you walk into a traditional office, they tended to be everybody looked alike and uh, talked alike and dressed alike. And it's not facing up to the reality of the next decade is which is diversity will be everywhere. We're going to be in a diverse world. And that's not a problem. It's an opportunity. <laughs> and we ask in the question, how can we be purposely different to create a sense of belonging, no matter how different you are? Then we ask the question of augmentation number five on our scale. And the, and what we're saying is that if you look future back, 10 years from now, we'll all be augmented. And, and the only question is, how will we be augmented? I don't like the term artificial intelligence. I think that's quite misleading. We use in the book augmented intelligence. And the key question is, what are what are the things that humans do best? And what do we want to keep for ourselves? And then what are the places where we need to be augmented? And, you know, I'm a writer. I write books. This is my 13th book. What I realized that if I'm going to be a big time writer 10 years from now, I've got to be augmented. So we use GPT-3, the, you know, the new chatbot that was just released a couple of weeks ago. We used an earlier version as we wrote that chapter on augmentation. Writers are going to have to be augmented. It's just going to be a cost of entry. Then we face the question of place and time. When do we work? Where do we work? What's the mix? And then finally, the seventh spectrum is agility. How do we hold it all together? How do we animate our connectivity in a way that's more future ready? You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So digging into a couple of those. So one of them is uh, augmentation. Yeah. And so one of the spectrums, I suppose, you, you have in the book is around uh, humans' technology. Uh-huh. So I'd like to think there's many facets or dimensions, I suppose, to how we can augment ourselves. And so again, taking this you know, information perspective, the I suppose humans are information processing uh, uh-huh. uh, animals, uh, machines in various guises do the same. And in combination, they can do that in a whole variety of as you say, augmented ways. So what are some of the ways which you see that we may augment ourselves individually or collectively to be able to uh, you know, create more effective organizations? Right. Um, so that all begins again with purpose. You know, what's the purpose? Uh, what's your own personal purpose? What's your own organizational purpose? And then you ask, what are the capabilities of augmentation so, for example, we did a custom forecast a couple of years ago for the world's largest rental equipment company, United Rentals. They, they rent large-scale equipment for constructing big buildings and, and other big, big projects. Um, if you imagine construction workers uh, 10 years from now, 
they'll all be augmented in some way. Um, exoskeletons will be practical. You see this particularly in Japan where you have an aging society um, and you want people to be able to work longer without getting hurt. Uh, and some of these exoskeletons for construction workers in Japan are just elegant. I mean, they're really nicely designed. The best ones we have in the U.S. are in the military. Um, and, you know, they're more for helping uh, injured warriors um, recover. Um, sometimes they're used on the battlefield, too, uh, exoskeletons. Um, but you, it depends on your purpose. Uh, and then you ask, well, what are the capabilities? Uh, in, in information uh, companies and for knowledge workers, we have to ask questions like, how can we augment the things that we're doing? You know, the release of the the, the chat GPT, uh, just what was it, three weeks ago, um, that's a very significant signal. You know, we, we talk about signals at Institute for the Future. Um, we refer to the Gibson quote, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. You know, GPT-3, the chatbot, um, is a signal of how we'll be able to interact with augmented resources for information to create things that are pretty good. You, we've got a group at Institute for the Future now. You know, we're the longest-running futures think tank in the world. So we're always questioning our methodology. We're methodologically agnostic. We've got a group at the Institute using chat GPT to do what we do. And and basically, we're pushing ourselves and saying, okay, what would it take for to have a, a chatbot do a custom forecast like what we do at the Institute. And what are the things we do best? What are the things we may be able to have a chatbot uh, help us do or even replace us in certain areas? And I think all of us in the information business have to be thinking about that. Um, the other thing I'm really interested in is uh, DALI uh, and Midjourney and the other kind of text to visualization. Uh, we've got a visualization in the new book, Office, uh, the Office Shock book, uh, about the Office verse. Um, and we recruited young artists all around the world to help us tell the stories of these seven spectrums of choice. We weren't happy with what we were coming up with with human artists, so we pulled in um, uh, Midjourney. And my colleague Joseph, who's an architect and an artist, he worked with Midjourney to create that image. And I think all of us need to be asking that kind of very serious questioning of our own ability and saying, what do we do best and what do computers do best? And thinking future back really helps you do that. Um, and that's a really important element of this book where most of the talk about offices now is based in the present, but the present is so noisy. And if you think future back, it just gives you a much fresher view. And, and in this case, the fresh view is what do we do best as humans, and what do computers do best, and how can we partner uh, to become augmented? Because in you know, in a real sense, Ross, ten years from now, we're all going to be cyborgs. You know, we're all going to be cyborgs. Uh, the only question is, what's the mix? Uh, and in a real sense, we've already begun that. You and I both wear glasses. Uh, ten years from now, those are going to be souped-up glasses. You know, Google Glass failed, but it failed in an interesting way. <laughs> So this, in one way, you can think of the offices as an architecture within which we are, well, li literal or metaphorical architecture in which uh -huh. we are working. And one of the functions and dysfunctions of those is meetings. 
And there's certainly many organizations where in particular the last few years has been an excess of meetings, Definitely. this whole back-to-back meeting syndrome and uh, a whole array of other ways in which uh, we're working, which which contributes to overload. And Definitely. overload is of information, overload can be of meetings, overload can be simply people are allocated too much work. So how is it that we can uh, design the work within organizations, wherever that may take place, so that we can avoid as much as possible this sure. feeling of overload sure. to be able to be functional, to be able to work in an environment you know, that we have a feeling of right. going beyond overwhelm to one we are comfortable and where we can operate in a place of, you know, that this is a, a uh, work environment where I'm comfortable and happy and not overwhelmed by everything that's been thrown at me. Right. No, it's a great question. Um, and I think meetings are really critical um, and we've got to figure out a way to do them better. Um, you know, I'm a sociologist by training and I've studied group dynamics my whole career. A lot of that has been studying group dynamics through electronic media. Um, my PhD is from Northwestern and I was there as the internet was just being born in the days of the, of the ARPANET. And one of the big realizations is meetings or video conferences, um, meetings, it's not a clean, independent variable. <laughs> if it was a clean, independent variable, then we could say, well, video conferencing is good for this, or in-person meetings are good for that. The big challenge is um, the quality of the meetings. So it's, it, it's rarely too many meetings. It's badly run meetings, <laughs> and that's really a key element. Uh, so it could be frequency, but more often it's quality, um, and leaders have to be great at running meetings. There's good meetings. There's lousy meetings. Lousy meetings lead to information overload. Um, well-run meetings um, mean you're able to manage complex information much better. So, so the key question to me is not how many meetings, it's how good are they? Um, and it, it's a little similar. You know, I hear a lot of people complaining about Zoom uh, or complaining about Microsoft Teams. Um, I'm sure there's some um, relevance to those critiques, but mostly uh, what they're talking about is badly run Zoom meetings or badly run Teams meetings. It's not the medium or PowerPoint. You say death by PowerPoint. Well, that's lousy PowerPoints. <laughs> that's the fault of the author, the fault of the designer. So we have to unpack those things a little more, I think, and, and get into not just the medium, but the quality of the use. So I'd like to, to turn to you, Bob. <laughs> so uh, you have been looking at the future for a very long time. You're author of any number of books. I've got at least one on my bookshelves uh, around here. <laughs> And would love to sort of hear in a nutshell, sure. what are some of your practices for thriving on overload, for taking the universe of information that you are exposed to, to create, you know, insightful books and yeah. guidance for the leaders you speak to and your, your other uh, uh, information outputs? Sure, sure. I'm happy to do that. And, um, you know, I've thought a lot about this, obviously, and, um, I, you know, I love what I do. So that's probably the beginning. Um, the research that came out during COVID by Blue Zone Project, I thought was really instructive. What they found was that purpose-driven people uh, are happier, they're healthier, 
and they live up to seven years longer. People who work at purpose-driven companies are happier, healthier, and they live up to 14 years longer. And purpose-driven companies tend to perform better. You know, I'm a purpose-driven person, and I became kind of focused on being a futurist in, in my 20s when I was a PhD student. And I went to divinity school before that, and that was actually where I was introduced to futures thinking. So this is very early. Um, later in life, I got to interview the management guru, Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker uh, told us at that time, he was 94 years old, told us at that time, the first half of your life, do many different things and work with many different kinds of people because you don't know who you are. The second half of your life, and it's pretty optimistic. You know, he was 94 and he was still going strong. So roughly 50. Uh, so you try by the time you're age 50 um, to figure out what your clarity is. And then you only work with things you're passionate about and only work with people you love to work with. I was really lucky. I found what I wanted to do in my 20s. And when I joined Institute for the Future, I joined a community of people I love to work with. So the earlier you can find that, um, the better. And I think that's one of the big, one of the big uh, personal guides for me is to stay focused on purpose. The other thing, and this is more unique to, to futurists, I focus my life 10 years ahead. Um, I am not that interested in the present. <laughs> Uh, so the, the present is really noisy, um, and I'm not an expert in the present. And fortunately, in my career, I've got people around me who take care of the present for me. <laughs> you know, I've got a calendaring assistant, a, a human, uh, I've got a, a research assistant, and I've got 50 colleagues who are constantly filtering for me and constantly looking out for me. And then periodically, I've got co-authors. You know, my 13 books, I think half of them were co-authored. So there's always that as another, another kind of filter. So the essence, and let, then I'll pause, and if you want to go deeper on it, the essence to me is the principle. You want to be very clear where you're going, but very flexible how you get there. So I'm very clear that I'm focused 10 years ahead. I want to write books. I have chosen to live on an island. Um, during COVID, I moved to Bainbridge Island from Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm looking right out at the Puget Sound. So I've chosen to live in a natural, beautiful environment and to figure out how to be better than when I was on stage uh, as a way of pacing myself at, at this age and continuing to do what I, what I love to do. But everybody needs to do that at some stage. You know, what is your clarity? And then how do you go about pursuing that clarity with flexibility uh, and with humility? Um, and then you build in your, your values. You know, I, I, I value kindness. I, I'm really seeking out people um, who are not only um, good at what they do, they're doing good things. No, that's fantastic. And uh, I think... A lot of people just get lost in information about the present, which is, as you say, uh, probably you know, of very little interest to a person like you uh, thinking about 10 years future, but probably very little value to them as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying the present is unimportant. I'm just saying uh, I'm not good at it. <laughs> you know, I'm really good at thinking. Because <laughs> you've got other priorities. 
And and just in a nutshell, what are any of your daily information habits, which in terms of just sources or types of content or formats or yeah. digestion or flowing any, what are some of the ways in which you you choose to engage with information through the day? Yeah. Um, so let me just get real personal on this. I think sleep is really important. Um, and, and I sleep more than a lot of people. I did, I sleep maybe eight or nine, sometimes 10 hours a night. Um, and I, but I, but I wake up in the middle of the night and I've always got a journal by me. So, so one of the ways I filter information is by understanding what keeps me up at night and, and what keeps me up tonight is, is often the most profound. And usually when I'm writing a book, when I'm in the middle of writing a book, I wake up with three or four pages of notes, um, a few kernels of which are actually useful. <laughs> so not everything is useful in the middle of the night, but I really believe in that notion of sleep. And I also believe in the more ancient concept of second sleep, that you, you do the first sleep and then you're kind of a pause. And that's where the big ideas happen to me is in, is in the middle of middle of the first sleep and the second sleep. Um, so I, I think that's really important. A lot of the high-powered people I work with don't sleep nearly as much as I do. And, and I think sleeping is really important. So, so that's the first thing. Um, then I think having people around you who serve as filters, who look for different things that you do than you do. Uh, the criteria I, I use for who I work with is, is I want to work with people who are different than me in an interesting way. And by interesting, that links to my purpose. You know, So people who help me understand the world 10 years out working back, um, those are the people I want to hang around with. Um, and I filter out everybody else, you know, so, um, I'm, I'm not very social. I'm more introverted than extroverted. Um, and I don't spend a lot of time at parties. I don't spend a lot of time with outreach. I'm, I'm quite selective as I'm, I'm new to this Island as of, uh, two years ago. Uh, and it's a very rich Island. It's, there's artists and writers and entrepreneurs and amazing people. We're just a ferry ride from Seattle. What I've done is volunteer for groups that I'm interested in. Like there's a group here doing Bainbridge Island 2035 and a group called Bainbridge Prepares uh, that's all about preparation for wildfires and tsunamis and earthquakes and the like. And there's a group called the Bainbridge Island Land Trust. And, and I've volunteered. I've, I've, I don't do boards. I've, I've tried boards of directors. I just find those not a good use of my time, but I volunteer for them to bring in foresight and to do things. And then I select from that people I would like to uh, get to know. And I ask if they'd like to go for a walk with me. So I've developed um, a handful uh, of really good relationships by that sort of selective meeting people. Um, and I think that's an important part of information overload. So they now become by sources of the kind of information that I want to pay attention to. Um, I, I, don't, I don't make systematic filtering use of a lot of online tools. I have colleagues who do, and I'm close to them, 
But again, I think that's partly an age and a skills and a career decision thing. I think that would work for, it works for me, but I've got resources that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, no, no that's fantastic. I absolutely agree on the, the sleep thing. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm a big believer in sleep. And I, you know, despite the uh, 4 a.m. mantra, many of the most successful people do sleep a lot. Right. And no, I think that you've, that's a wonderful description, I suppose, the specifics of how it is you're building the, you know, what I describe as personal information networks. Of course, they're far more than that. It is community and personal connection, but, you know, they are information networks. It is community. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And and uh, the other thing I didn't me- mention, but I should, is exercise. Um, I think exercise is way more important than most people think it is. Um, I was a college athlete. I went to college on a basketball scholarship and played Division One at University of Illinois. I wasn't great, but I was good enough to get a scholarship. I wasn't good enough to be a pro. So it meant that I had to come up with a new identity when I went to graduate school. Um, but I do think physical exercise and having some kind of exercise routine um, is is critical to every great thinker I know. Um, and, and yet again, it's often overlooked. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights, Bob. Your Office Shock is a, an important and uh, insightful book, and I think there's a leader should definitely uh, use it as a resource to get an insight into how they will create uh, the office verse to achieve their purpose as an organization. Great. And thank you for your insights. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. No, thank you, Ross. And I really appreciate your book and your effort to help people learn to thrive. We're in this, we're both in the thrive business. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.